should be live. You're live. Hello, Stop Talk listeners. We have a very special episode for you today. This is number 34 with your host, Daniel, Daniel Prong from Calgary and Jake Ruth from New York. Today, we have a special guest whose insights in the world of finance have won him a dedicated audience. Meet Austin. He's an investor with a knack for long-term success and a devoted family man. His unique career has spanned from the United States Air Force to Social Capital LP, and Austin has cultivated a deep understanding of financial literacy around investments. And as of last month, officially affiliated with Stock and Lock. So welcome Woo! to the <laughs> Let's go. Uh, he shares the wisdom to over 50,000 followers on Twitter, if you're not already following him, uh, who tune in for his insights. So welcome, everyone. And we're going to have a great conversation between three investing nerds. Welcome to Stock Talk, uh, Austin. Thanks for having me. And um, I think ChatGPT wrote that awesome intro, right? So thanks, ChatGPT. <laughs> I copied and pasted a lot of your LinkedIn stuff and things from your Substack. I was like, please give me a good summary, iterated on it a bit. And here we are. Thank you, ChatGPT. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Excited to be here. And um, yeah, I've just been a fan of the platform and a user for a long time. And um, just really excited to like partner together and I think between the three of us, like our goal is to try to help as many people get inspired to invest and save and just be smart with their money. And so um, it's just cool to partner up. Definitely. It looks like you got some fans in the chat. Uh, Zion Luca. I love Austin. Great guest. All Thank right. You. Thanks. I like Zion. I love you too, Zion. <laughs> awesome. So Daniel, I think we've been getting some pretty interesting questions this week in our Discord. Want to lead us off with the Facebook question we got? Yeah, so I'll condense this. We had a question in our Discord about a... Well, we get questions in the Discord all the time, and then people ask us basically to talk about it in the live stream just to save some time and typing. So this question was very long from KB2010. I'm going to simplify it down into one sentence. <laughs> basically, they purchased Meta in the dip um, when it was down quite a bit, and now they are up 50% on their position and they don't really know what to do. Should they sell it? Should they continue holding? And the question is really like, is it value investing to sell a position as well? Or are you really stuck holding all of your stocks forever, despite even if you believe that they're becoming over fair value now? So my opinion is it really just depends on the investors or the individual's investment thesis and why they initially got into the stock. So full disclosure, I was buying Meta down in that dip. I was buying it. The lowest I ever bought it was around $90 a share. And at this point, I am fully out of my Meta position. I don't hold any more Meta. The reason why I sold is because I thought that it was just ridiculously cheap. I thought that at $90, you know, it was trading for an enterprise value to free cash flow, something like seven. I thought that was just kind of ridiculous for Meta. So I bought it. I wasn't a huge bull on the overall business over the long term. So for me, when it got to fair value and slightly above fair value, I was totally fine to sell my position. However, I've also seen people where they believe that Meta is going to be a much larger business over the next 20 years, and they still think that it is fair value today relative to what they believe the company could be over the long term. So their investment thesis is totally different. And for those people, they're holding. So again, I think that it just really comes down to the individual. Why did you buy the stock? How do you feel about it today? And yeah, just really what was your initial investment thesis in revisiting that? Yeah, uh, I owned Meta too. I was trying to, I wasn't like doing random stuff. If it looked like I was distracted, I was actually trying to pull up my transaction history with Meta, but very similar story to you, Daniel. Um, and I think actually this is where you and I probably first like started kind of talking about stocks. I feel like we talked about Meta a while ago when we both thought it was cheap or maybe I commented on one of your videos or a tweet or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it was the same thesis, right? Like um, they the company was essentially cheaper on a, whatever metric you look at it on uh, price to earnings, price to free cash flow, whatever, than it ever had been as a publicly traded company. And the only time it was close was back in 2018 when all of the security issue stuff came out. And, you know, if you looked, it got extremely undervalued back then. The business just kept kind of performing as usual and the stock came back in line with the fundamentals of the business over the next couple of years. And that was a great return for investors from 2018 to like 
20 and then in 20 all the renaming to meta happened and so yeah it was the same deal like everybody hated it uh no one believed in the change over to the metaverse and everyone thought that they were wasting a bunch of money on it and they very likely are but my reasons were exactly the same um the stock on any metric you looked at was was very cheap and then if you looked at the cash flow being produced by the business as well as you know there's you can count the number of companies that have 3 billion monthly active users or 2 billion or whatever on like two fingers it's like facebook and or meta and what alphabet and you know maybe one more um and so what they've accomplished is is super super impressive and super rare and so yeah if you just simply looked at uh they were in are betting on the metaverse and they were giving up um profitability with the underlying engine of the business still being very profitable that always had been. And so at any moment, you know, it wasn't life or death for, for Meta. It was invest in the future and sacrifice some short-term cash flow to, to try to make this big bet. And at any point, Zuckerberg could have turned stuff off, gotten back, you know, to the same level of profitability or more. And that's what we've seen happen is, is now, you know, Facebook or Meta has not rallied back because of crazy growth. They've rallied back because of efficiency. And I, I think you and I both saw the ability for them to just simply cut costs and get back to that level. And then for the stock to you know go higher, just getting back to a very reasonable valuation. I no longer own it either because I think you know that um, rebound from solely profitability improvements is now done. And at some point, uh, yeah, growth is going to have to come back for this stock can, to continue to outperform. And for me personally, um, I just looked at like Amazon and Alphabet, uh, you know, ticker Google as companies that I think have a little bit are more discounted now than Meta. And so that's where I kind of moved those dollars into is is Google and Amazon, because um, I think it's like a, a similar story to where Meta was last year. Yeah, I remember too when Apple was making all the changes to their ad platform and the ability to track. There was a lot of hoopla around: Are these ad businesses going to continue to sustain? It seems like they have, and as you mentioned, the year of efficiency definitely working out for them. It seems like some of the activist investors who also reached out to Zuck over Twitter and things like that to kind of chill out on the metaverse investments a little bit. You know, that's uh, obviously is what they're doing. I'm curious if you guys have any opinions about the AR glasses coming out. So. I know that Quest is going to drop a $500 headset. Apple also announced this. It seems like you guys both sold. So can I assume that you're both not bullish on that idea or is it just not really something that, you know, piques your interest as an investor? Yeah. Did you just... Oh, I thought you were letting me go. I'm going to go. Uh, okay. I'll go first. So I think that it doesn't matter for, um, I don't, uh, the glasses and VR stuff that um, Meta is releasing right now, I don't think, um, you know, Zuckerberg, it, his goal with those is not for those, these versions to be a needle mover. And so to me, there's those, this version is not going to be a needle mover. What they're doing is they're investing in the, the technology, the R&D and the underlying platform. So that if the next platform moves from iPhone or, you know, mobile phones to VR, they've been working on it for 10 to 12 years and they're not going to be left behind. And again, it's just that long-term mindset sacrificing a little bit of profitability because they can, and they have the underlying ad business to fund it. And um, so, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a, a needle mover, but in 10 years uh, it, it could keep them, the effort they're doing now could keep them from being disrupted. And cause that's how companies die. Right. Or like that's how IBM became irrelevant as they stopped innovating. Um, I, I don't think Meta is going to do that, but um, I think there'll be another point where it gets like undervalued again that I could, you know, invest in it again when it was undervalued versus just better opportunities right now. Yeah, I I always thought that the metaverse was pretty speculative. So with meta going all in, like the reality is I have no idea what those margins are going to look like. I don't even know if they're ever going to cash flow on that. I just have no idea what that looks like. So meta, I've always said on my channel that it was more speculative to me because I just don't know the answer to these questions. And that's why, you know, I was buying Meta just because I thought that it was so cheap that the speculative aspect of the business was kind of taken out. And then now that it's rallied back so hard, I'm like, well, you know, this was kind of a speculative stock for me, bought it because it was cheap. Now I'm just like, I'm just happy to get rid of it. And um, same thing Austin said, like Google is now trading for cheaper price ratios. 
and it's growing faster. And I think that it's overall a better business. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's just better opportunities out there now, which is uh, which is why I really sold it too. Awesome. Well, there you have it. Let us know what you all think in the chat. Are you holding Meta? Are you looking at it? Did you sell it? Let us know what you think. These are all opinions, of course, not financial advice. And yes, take a drink for those playing the drinking game every time I give the disclaimer <laughs> to the SEC. <laughs> a little bit of a gear shifter here. A lot of people have also been asking in our Discord about a lawsuit Airbnb has filed or rather continued against New York. So I do just have a few minutes of some research I did there. Obviously, I am an Airbnb shareholder. I have presented this stock on the stream before, and I'm a bull on Airbnb. So of course, people are asking me, hey, what do you think about this? So very quick, what you're looking at right here, this is actually from 2018. So the Bureau of Budget from New York City basically put together, and I will summarize it for you, a little research report. This is the summary of it, making the claim that Airbnb is responsible for uh, renting uh, prices to rent for consumers going up. So let's talk about that a little bit. So this is an ongoing lawsuit. Uh, this lawsuit actually, I think originally was filed in 2020 and then they went put it dormant and came back now in 2022. Pretty much what this lawsuit will do is add a lot of regulations and constraints for short-term renters. What Airbnb claims is it's a lot of hoopla and regulations that make it near impossible for the short-term rental market to thrive. New York is coming in and saying, you're the reason why our rents are going up you are evil. So this is just my opinion. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. From what I can gauge from the article, they are summarizing the entire rental market and economics of New York City across all five boroughs to very, very simple math. They're saying, let's look at the number of Airbnb listings and then let's look at their rent prices. And then they start to do a correlation analysis on how those two are related to each other. I think the chat should come to their own conclusion if they believe that or not. I think that's a way oversimplification of this, I also believe in supply demand side economics for how business works. And there is a big want both from people making money from doing Airbnb type products for their own homes, as well as consumers looking for that for travel. And this brings up a lot of property right issues. So just to put this in context, uh, we're talking about New York City here. So it was reported that Airbnb uh, had $85 million of revenue from New York City in 2022. I just did a bit of math on that to put this into context. And that is around 1% of Airbnb's revenue. I'm not going to wave my hand and say this isn't a real concern. I think this is one of the risks with Airbnb. There is legislation being rolled out from different cities trying to curb this. In my opinion, this is very Uber-esque when the taxi industry started lobbying governments and saying, hey, please keep the taxis, uh, don't bring in Ubers. I'm finding a very similar situation now with the hospitality industries with Airbnb. So just wanted to address those. Those are my opinions. And obviously, uh, Austin and Daniel, feel free to uh, rebuttal me here or have any additional thoughts, but that's that's what I had to bring for the lawsuit. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, looks like you did some pretty good research there on uh, Airbnb's exposure to New York City. Um, yeah, I would just keep eyes on it. As you said, if it becomes like a widespread issue where a lot of cities are doing this, then I would start to get concerned. But at the moment, less than 1% of revenue, probably not a huge deal. Yeah, and the stock just keeps moving on me. I was buying a couple shares once it went down to 104, 105, and I just checked again. It's back up to 118, so it just keeps uh, getting pumped up. But I will continue to be patient, as we all are. The other thing I had to bring, even though I don't want to roll into the second one, is uh, Chewy Earnings. But I thought another fun conversation could be about BAM and BN. So Austin and Daniel, I believe you are both shareholders of BN and have had some camaraderie with each other around that stock. I do not own that stock. And for someone who hasn't analyzed it at all, I just take a quick look. I see tons of debt. I see a very complicated business. I know we've talked about this a lot before on the channel, but curious what you guys both see together in that stock and maybe where you might disagree a bit, but was curious what yeah. made you guys buy? Yeah, this is where it's like, love it. Brookfield Asset Corporation <laughs> for, me and, for me and Daniel. Um, yeah, we're both investors i think it's a larger position um in in daniel's portfolio than it is in mine um i, I guess first so i want to talk about like the hesitations or the risks that i i see in the in the company not you know i i was about to say stock but i'm trying to think in terms of companies right the risks are definitely it is a complicated structure and you're putting a lot of trust in 
the management team and their ability to invest and the decisions that they they're making and just that they're like doing everything legally. Um, and, you know, at no time in its publicly traded history, which it's been publicly traded, I think for like two decades or something like that. And then they've, the business itself has been around for like over a hundred years. Um, you know, they don't have any like SEC violate, like it, this is a legitimate company in their history. Right. So I'm not worried about like anything illegal. Um, but the, the thing that I think I'm thinking most about is although uh, Bruce Flat calls this out as like, hey, there's a lot of companies that came up in this low interest rate world and, you know, invested. And there's a lot of like commercial real estate corporations that have been built up that way. Like he's acknowledged that and called it out and and made it seem like they're not one of those companies. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, they were very successful um, over the last couple de decades in the same environment as everybody else. And so, you know, that low rate environment, no matter how you say it, like has definitely helped the stock and the performance. It's, it's, it's returned like 19% per year Kager over the last 20 years to shareholders, which is like a 25 X return. Just crazy. Um, nice. Yeah. It's amazing. Right. That has definitely been helped by the low rate environment. And so, the risk out there is like, are they truly safe from and going to stay strong and outperform in a higher interest rate environment? And I think they will. It's just that's an, an acknowledged risk. And then, you know, we have seen some stuff out there about vacancy rates. And there was a couple, um, I don't know if it was officially like bankruptcies or that they, they did on some of their properties in, uh, or I forget what the, default. I, I don't want to put the wrong term out there, but it, it was in the news. And and I think what that was is just them making smart capital allocation decisions and realizing like, hey, the investment is not there and this is the best decision for that. But it's like their um, uh, rates are, they're at like 95%, you know, um, a the delinquency rate is like less than 5%, basically. And so those negatives are definitely out there, but I think they're pretty safe from it. The reason I'm invested in the company is because, A, I think it's um, it has historically outperformed. When I see a management team that does that, um, it's not guarantee of future success, but they're the same management team, right? So they're probably going to keep doing some of the things that worked in the past. Uh, B, I think this, the stock is very cheap compared to uh, what the future of the business is and the current cash flows. And um, I think like the executives have bought $100 million in shares recently on the open market. The company's reinvesting in shares. They think it's cheap. Um, and then I think that we are in for basically like a boom in critical infrastructure. And I don't know enough myself to go out and invest in critical infrastructure. But if there's any company in the world that can do it, um, you know, history shows that they've done a good job at it. And so that's kind of how I'm playing real estate critical infrastructure, they're in renewables, they're investing in India, which is going to be like a huge growth market. And it's for, for me, it's just one I'm just like going to hold for a very long time and hope that management can do anything similar to what they've done for the last 20 years. Um, I'd be happy with 15% annual annualized returns over yeah. the next 20 years if you look at what Definitely. that turns into. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds great. Well, Austin is bullish on BN. I think, Daniel, you're in that crowd, too. Any thoughts on some of the risks he brought up there? I saw a lot of nods coming from your end. Yeah, the real estate risk, I think, is massively overblown in the headlines. Like, Brookfield has had, I think it's something like $400 million worth of properties default on their debt. And when you do, on a percentage, it's 0.4% of their entire portfolio. And then the other 99.6 so far is doing fine, but they have admitted that 4.6% left is not high quality real estate. Whereas, whereas the other 95% is like top tier real estate. So overall, I'm not worried about that. Um, I think the headlines overblow the small, small portion of the real estate that's in a little bit of trouble right now. Um, yeah, I, th I think you've covered that well on this live stream before too. I'm forgetting the show number, but we talked actually about the default that Austin was referencing. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of the debt on the balance sheet, like if you take a look at Brookfield without like diving into the numbers, which is 
why it's such a complicated business. It looks like total Stop trash. About me. No, it looks like <laughs> trash, like straight up. There's no way to dispute that. You know, it's got like two hundred billion dollars plus of debt. Not, it doesn't look good. But then it, you look, have it to, looks terrifying to an idiot like me who didn't yeah, look then, into the covers. But then when you understand the company's structure and why it's reporting like that, so a large portion of it, I think it's like eighty percent of that debt on the balance sheet is actually their subsidiary's debt that is non-recourse to the corporation. So that debt actually has zero risk to Brookfield Corporation, the ticker BN. Um, it's just they have to report that because their subsidiaries have all that debt and they own like 30 to 40 to 50% of their subsidiaries. But you, when you dive through the financials and you actually take a look at the corporation, which is what you're investing in, and the, the risk and the exposure of the corporation, it's significantly lower. And their balance sheet is actually significantly cleaner. So you really have to dig through the, you know, two, 300 pages of SEC filings to understand what's actually going on with that business, which makes yeah. it difficult. And that's, and <laughs> yeah, if, that's, and that's if how not, you find opportunity, right? Yeah. And if you're not willing to do that or you don't want to do that, you don't know how to do that or it's intimidating, then I totally think that people should not buy it or invest in it because it is a confusing corporation. It's a confusing stock. And uh, if it's out of your wheelhouse, then the best option is just to avoid it. Yeah. And I mean, I full disclosure, that is what I'm doing. I'm not ashamed about it. If I wanted yeah. to spend a week or two of my time, could I learn it? Probably. But yeah, it just doesn't uh, doesn't get me going. Well, in 10 years from now, let's flash forward and do a little future site. When Airbnb is banned in every single city around the world and all these <laughs> infrastructure plays have played out across BN, when I am poor and taking out loans, you guys can take me out on your yacht and throw me a $100 bill or something. So. Sounds good. Uh, Austin, you <laughs> did have a question here in the chat from Yurd, if you wanted to take uh, about 60 seconds on this one. I'm going to prepare a little chat for Chewy earnings after this. But yeah. Austin, how do you keep your emotions out of investing? You seem very good at it. Thank you for the yeah. Uh, first of all, that's an awesome picture. And is that does that dog have something on its nose? I'm so curious. What is that? Is that like a thing? You gotta you gotta tell us more about that picture. Here. It looks like a tennis um, ball, like on on the nose of the dog. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so one real quick thing on what Daniel was just talking about about the complexity, right? Like, um, I heard Howard Marks on a podcast, and he he had owned. I'm pretty sure it was Howard Marks. Uh, he's a you know famous investor at uh, Oak Tree, and he had owned Brookfield for a pretty long period of time, done, did well in it and then sold it. And it went on to continue to outperform and like crush the market. And he just said he sold it because it got too complex for him and he wasn't comfortable owning it. And so, you know, that's one of the best investors of our time, probably smarter than all three of us put together. And it was too complex for him. Right. So um, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, and that's a very good reason not to invest in a company. So, yeah. Um, What's up? Just really quick. What's funny is uh, Brookfield actually ended up acquiring Oak Tree. So they acquired Howard Marks. <laughs> did they did they acquire the whole like, I don't know if they acquired the whole company, but they're definitely in partnership on stuff. Um... Right now, but they're acquiring a little bit more every single year. Yeah, I was in the deal. So I think they acquire 3% more every single year. But yeah. it's just funny how that worked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Back to the question. Emotions. Um, I, this is where I think I need to improve the most as an investor, actually. And um, what I'm trying to do now with my, there's a couple of things, right? And this is like not personal finance advice, but um, I have never invested any money in the stock market that I plan to need in the next three to five years. And a perfect example of that is back in 2018 or 19, um, my family and I were going through a transition. I was transitioning off of active duty Air Force and had some unknowns with like future job and stuff like that. We we're also buying a house. As soon as I figured out that, you know, those were the next steps we were taking, I made sure that I had whatever money I needed for that stuff, um, you know, out of the market. And so that's the first way to help, you know, avoid being emotional with your money in the market is don't, I don't invest money that I might need at a minimum of three years, but, you know, hopefully five years plus. Uh, I also don't use, margin or, or crazy stuff like that. And when you're not doing that, that helps you avoid being reckless and emotional. Uh, but I still make a ton of mistakes and I am emotional. It's the number one thing I'm trying to fix. Um, and so the way that I'm trying to do that is I'm trying to reduce the amount of decisions I have to make. And so uh, 
a specific example is instead of being, there are times where I've had a very concentrated portfolio. Back when I thought Meadow was like super undervalued, it was like 25% of my portfolio. And uh, it worked out in the end. I, I ended up making about 100% on it and then sold, sold early, whatever. But through that process, as Meta continued to go down and down and down, that was like hard and it was emotionally taxing. And so um, what I've done now is like, I've just decided I'm going to own, you know, 18 to 25 companies. And in terms of the capital that I invest, it's going to be about even between all of them. And then I'm going to let the ones that perform best become larger positions in my portfolio on their own with a cap of like, and, and this will change over the years, but I wouldn't let any position get to be more than, you know, 15% of the portfolio. And that's outperforming on its own, not me investing more and more. And the reason I'm doing that is because, you know, we see some of these genius investors out there, even Charlie Munger really screwed up on Alibaba. Uh, Monish Pabrai really screwed up on Alibaba. You know, if they're screwing up on those things, like I'm going to as well. Um, but at the same time, I do think I can identify great companies. And if I just own a portfolio of solid companies and I don't blow myself up, then I think in 20, 25, 30 years, uh, I have the ability to, you know, hopefully outperform the market and then meet all the financial goals that I would have for my family. So I'm trying to stay, you know, less emotional by removing the amount of decisions I have to make and, and protecting myself from getting overexposed. Um, and then what that also does is like that lowers the amount of transactions and trimming and trading that you do, which is like a, a major flaw that I have that I'm trying to improve. Wow. Well, there you have it. The uh, stock investing Buddha himself, Austin, <laughs> but no great frameworks in there. Reducing decisions can definitely relate to you there. And great reminder, as you said, uh, we have a really funny comment here from Alex Pohl, a regular viewer. Stop being a human, Austin. Uh, just a great point that we all have emotions and no one's going to be perfect. And as you cited, there are obviously famous investors out there who don't bat 100%. So why should we? And I think Daniel and I are definitely in the sad train on uh, being down on Baba, but that's what it seems like in the moment and maybe for the foreseeable future as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had one other comment here from Stock Auto. My question for Jake, if you had to pick one, would you go with Chewy or Airbnb? Uh, today, definitely Airbnb. This is actually a great question. So let's actually hop into Chewy. They recently reported earnings this week and the stock relatively popped up, although, of course, everything's relative if you zoom out. I'm going to very quickly, uh, Austin, Daniel, just go through, take a few pause points on this and highlight what I saw in their earnings. My very high level thoughts are the stock still looks expensive to me, not financial advice, but would I personally buy it today? No, I'm personally not buying it today. I still think it looks kind of expensive. And there's a lot of things that excite me about this business and a few things that concern me. But overall, I love Chewy as a business. I think they have a big moat and a lot of customer loyalty. And we're going to get into all that here. So. I will not run through everything in this screenshot, but just to give people a high level overview, if you went to Chewy's investor relations page, this is what they're advertising. It looks like they're generally beating on all their income statement metrics. Although in my personal opinion, the 1% gain on EPS year over year is pretty flat. So a few things to call out with how they report. And again, as Austin said before, we like to view stocks as companies. There's actual people working here. It's not just this ambiguous entity. They are really transparent with how they report adjusted financial metrics. So again, not here to give a complete walkthrough, but a gripe Daniel and I usually have with companies reporting adjusted EBITDA, adjusted free cash flow, is it is kind of a schmear usually with companies trying to make their financials look better than they actually are. So while Chewy does report the adjusted numbers, they made it incredibly clear and easy to find how exactly they compute that. So that was just a little positive point in that direction for them, in my opinion. This is their cash flow statement. So I found this very interesting. Just on the bottom line, it kind of looks good, right? 148 mil of operating cash flow compared to 82 last year. But I broke that down a bit more. Let's kind of see what is adding to that. So stock-based compensation almost doubled. That's actually up almost 23 million from 2022. And then this kind of mystery line item, which I had to learn what it was, accrued expenses and other liabilities is increased expenses that they owe for services rendered and they view that as cash retained, which is why it's put on the operating cash flow, which is very interesting to me, by the way. But this growth number started looking way less attractive to me once I kind of broke this down, since it didn't really seem like it was being driven by like net income growth. It looked like it was 
stock-based compensation and other things like that. Not sure if you guys have any comments on this, uh, Nigger Austin, while we have this up. Um, one thing, one thing I guess is just whenever I see a company use adjusted EBITDA now, immediately it's a red flag for me. Like you're, you're not just using EBITDA at that point. You're also adjusting the EBITDA numbers. So immediately, yeah, that's a red flag for me. Yeah, fair enough. So, so speaking of red flags, their active customers were flat. And this was a huge red flag for me. They actually went down. So this company's revenue is going up because they have a flagship product called AutoShip, which is actually really great. It's a subscription business for dog food. These people's pets are gonna keep having to eat if there's a recession. That's obviously meant to be a joke. They're not gonna stop feeding their pets, right? They're gonna keep getting pet food. So they do have huge customer loyalty. My mom loves this company. Everyone I talk to loves this company. It checks off all the consumer boxes for me. They have amazing customer support, but this was really concerning. They just actually went down in active customers, which they claim is from COVID tailwinds. I'm having a little trouble buying that. And then the second red flag, and then I'll stop, is the stock is running a bit because they finally announced an international expansion. And for those of you who don't know, Chewy is purely based in the US today. So it looks like, in my opinion, they might be topping off, which is surprising to me. I would not have said this last quarter, but based on the numbers, it seems like active subscribers are topping off. And the market they're going into is Canada. Now, Daniel, I don't mean to put you down. This might actually be a good thing. But Canada is actually one of the most sparse areas in the entire planet for human population and is a fraction, a fraction of the population of the U.S. So the revenue opportunity there for me is not going to be a needle mover. I was more so hoping that they would announce that they would go international in Europe or into larger markets or at least more of them. So they do seem like they'll do that over time. But yeah, stock is expensive. Insiders are selling shares. I love it, the business from a consumer lens, but there's a few concerning things here for me. So I was very bullish. I'm kind of mixed now. This is a stock I would consider owning, but definitely just watching it for now. That's it. Um, can I share my screen? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, let's do it. We're doing some screen sharing. Um, So I don't know if you heard of this or not, but this is Stock Unlock. Uh, we uh, and, we uh, don't see your screen yet. Or... Oh, no. Oh, there we go. I just added it to the stream. Let us know in the chat if you can see that, but I think you're up now. Okay, I don't know if you all have heard of this. This is Stock Unlock. StockUnlock.com. <laughs> all right, check it out. Uh, no, but seriously, this is what can... I don't own Chewy, and this is what concerns me with the company, right? The green here is revenue, um, and then red is uh, cost of revenue and operating expenses. I, especially because growth is slowing down, right? Like if I'm gonna invest in a company like this, um, I'm fine with investing in, in hyper growth companies or growth companies if the growth justifies kind of the expenses, right? But as growth kind of tapers off and it becomes more of like a, a stable company, you need to see profitability. And that's my issue with Chewy is I just don't, like I don't see that trend changing just if you simply like look at the numbers on a, the trend of it that's and that's one of my favorite ways to use stock unlock honestly is it, it just is a great way to like visualize this stuff and so um there's just so many in my opinion better investment opportunities out there than taking a risk on a company like this for for me do you mind um, clicking on the uh, metrics tab we could check out the margins as well just to elaborate on what you're saying i think they hover right around a 28 percent gross yeah. and then it's very thin thin on the rest of them so yep yeah, just as you um, said, they're talking. So this is left side here is most recent, right? And so um, the other cool thing about this is like you can see green is uh, it's improved, red is it's worse. So it's just an easy way to see the trend. Um, and I just there's just not enough profitability here, like not enough gross margin for then these uh, like the cash flow numbers ultimately to to make sense, um, unless they like become the Amazon of dog food and 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 somehow do that but i just don't think that you know it, it's just not that type of opportunity um in my opinion like i'd rather own amazon i buy dog food locally and you can get dog food on amazon too woof, woof. are there any chewy shareholders we just made mad potentially but uh it's okay <laughs> <laughs> i i have been uh accused of making people a little bit upset here and there which is okay 
Yeah. Well, but I'm wrong a lot, right? So if I'm exactly me too. I've definitely been wrong before. We've actually had someone call me out for being wrong too. Like we analyzed the stock. I said I didn't really like it. And then that stock ended up being acquired or the company ended up being acquired. It went up like a hundred percent or something. They made a ton of money. I was like, fair enough. I yeah. love to be wrong. Yeah. And but that's yeah. the awesome thing about investing. Like you can be wrong, own different companies, do great. And then somebody that owns the company you were wrong about can do great too. That's that's what's awesome about it. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing a fund manager and they said the best, the best portfolio they've seen all year was an actual paper portfolio where they took in a class of 12 year olds and this 12 year old student just like picked some of their like favorite stocks. It was like Netflix, uh, Lululemon. Uh, I think it was a, uh, adolescent female and the portfolio has beat literally every single fund manager out there. Yeah. One thing I forgot to bring up super quick here, just to close us out on Chewy, they did make an acquisition for Petabyte, which is interesting. Petabyte is a, veterinarian clinic kind of pet healthcare. So I don't really have much more to share than that. But for those who are thinking, where can Chewy go in addition to selling dog food and dog toys, cat toys, even horse food, things like that. It does look like they're trying to make a move into pet healthcare. That's where I have to stop though. I'm not an expert on pet healthcare and don't know enough about it to get excited about it as an investor yet, but it does look like they're trying to expand the offerings. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, I just think Chewy, is not a very profitable business. I highly doubt they're going to be profitable in the future. Um, I read through that earnings report really quick. I saw that they had an adjusted EBITDA margin of 4%, another massive red flag for me. I don't know if that company's ever gonna make money. Um, that's basically what it comes down to. Um, we have a question here from Mark. Speaking of BABA, this is from earlier. How do you feel about China in general, BABA, Tencent, and PDD? So I guess uh, my... My thoughts are I hold Baba. I've been heavily researching PDD. I actually also own a little bit of Tencent. And it's funny you named these three companies because uh, I'm seriously considering buying some PDD when I can. It looks like a great business. You know, it's growing super quick. It's got a fantastic balance sheet. Cash flows are great. And it's trading at what I believe is a significant discount to its fair value. What do they do? They're like a... They're like a mini... Alibaba, actually, they're like an online marketplace. But they're growing really quickly and they actually have exposure to the US as well. I haven't fully researched that area of the business, but looks like they are growing their business in the US. And one of the interesting things, like I haven't looked at this stock in a while, I don't know if they still do this, but they basically started this model of where if you are a user, and this is popular from the reading I did in China, where it's not a popular thing here in the US or in Canada that I know of, um, where if you're like a user and you wanted to buy something, you actually can basically send a link or whatever, or share it with like your group of friends. And the more people you get to go in on, you know, this, this, uh, you know, it's everything from like, I think produce to like, uh, any, any type of like little, little things that you could use at home to food, um, but basically, it's like the more people you get on it, the bigger discount you get. And so uh, customers are incentivized to get more customers to come on and buy stuff because they get lower prices. And so that's that was like a tactic they use. I think um, it's not called a Ponzi scheme. No, well, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, the it um, it the, the uh, Colossus podcast, I think it was or business breakdowns or whatever, did like a breakdown of PDD and talked about this was their growth hack of how they like had. Uh, super fast exponential user growth to start. Um, yeah. I don't own any Chinese companies I have before. And the reason I don't goes back to the emotional thing, right? For me, there's too many unknowns, things that I just don't know. And you could see the Chinese government come down at any moment, which we've seen in the past with um, Ant Group and stuff like that, and basically just completely change things uh about these companies and and it could be a, a 30 to 50 percent hit overnight right and so for me i fully acknowledge that everyone is basically negative on china companies and that means that there's probably undervalued companies there and like some great upside but for me personally i wouldn't be comfortable making them a large enough position in my portfolio to actually hold on to them as they rallied if i was right and so i just know like 
there's not that much profit in for, for me as an investor because I wouldn't be comfortable with it. And I like I would be more nervous, you know, probably trade in and out too much. And so like it's a perfect example of like I'm willing to give up all that upside and cheer people on if they're doing great in those stocks because I just know they're not the right investments for me. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more on the China note. Just tackle what you guys are saying. I I also own Baba. And now retroactively looking back at it, I just don't really sleep too well at night, not knowing what the Chinese government can do and how they manage these companies. So that is obviously something that's unique to China and something people should keep in mind when investing there. Daniel, keep us updated on the PDD research. Whether you end up investing or not, that could be a fun one to do a dive on. Yeah, I keep my China exposure very low overall. So I, I definitely don't make this like a large portion of my portfolio, but uh, I do like to have some exposure over there. Uh, Austin, don't mean to put you on the spot here because I'm actually forgetting what the specifics were, but I think you might have had like a topic or two you wanted to present. Is there anything you wanted to bring to the stream today? Yeah. Um, so a couple things. I'll share my screen real quick. Um, and again, like you have, neither of you have told me how I'm supposed to use this platform. Did I share my right screen earlier when I was sharing the screen? Did you see? Yeah, you saw it, right? Okay. Yeah, um, I just need to you, manually add it to. There you go. I, I think you're good. There, for some weird reason, when Daniel and I share, it just goes to the stream, but this yeah. software is treating you differently. But no worries, right. you are you are up. Um, cool. So this is how, like, one of my favorite things about Stock Unlock is I've got two portfolios here, right, and they're combined uh, into one. And then you can see like the overall performance and nobody paid attention. But uh, since I moved everything onto here, May 5th, uh, S&P 500 outperformed my portfolio. We don't care about, you know, I don't pay attention to that. Um, but what I like to do, so I have basically like the idea for me is um, I want exposure to growth stocks. So it's about, uh, and I have the like a dividend growth portfolio and then a long-term growth portfolio. And what you can see is this portfolio right now is like, or actually in, uh, if we go to combined, and um, go to breakdowns. Uh, let's see, insight breakdowns. Yeah. Um, nope, that's not it. Dividends, here you go. So 55% of the portfolio is non-dividend stocks and 44% is dividend stocks, right? And I'm starting to think that, you know, growth companies are starting to be fully valued or overvalued. And so with new contributions to the portfolio, I'm going to start to basically only be putting those into dividend stocks and then let this come back into kind of an even balance. And that's how I'm thinking about portfolio management. And what I love about it is, is I've got these two separate portfolios, dividend growth, uh, and it tells me all my dividend stats and everything, which is really cool, uh, and then growth. And so what I can do over time is, you know, three years, five years from now, I can see which portfolio is, you know, performing better. And if there's a significant difference there, then that would be a point where I would like reassess and say, you know what, uh, maybe I should be putting more of my time and dollars into um, just dividend stocks or or growth stocks or whatever, because I've done terrible in growth stocks and great in dividend stocks. So that's that's one of my favorite ways to use the platform. Um, and if the loading issues here are probably on my end, the Internet in here is not the greatest. Um, so it's kind of like if you're noticing it's taking a while to load, that's that's on my end here, I think. Um, OK. One of the things I wanted to talk about, um, so you'll see in the dividend growth portfolio that I own MMP. Let me go to overview. It's a quick um, rude interjection. For anyone who is curious, this is the Stock Unlock portfolio tracker. So if you're not yet on this, Daniel and I are two out of three co-founders of Stock Unlock. We'd love for you to check us out. Thank you for letting yeah. me take that plug. Back to you, Austin. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the stock unlock YouTube stream. So check out stockunlock.com. Um, <laughs> but Magellan midstream, right. Is uh, they pay a 6.82% dividend and they've paid it for a, a long time consistently. Um, you can go in here into the dividend tab and you can see 6.82%. The five-year compound annual growth rate is 2%. So not crazy dividend growth, but still it's growing. Um, and then it tells you, uh, you, you can look at all the dividend history, right? And so you can just see since 2004, they've essentially like grown the dividend, I think every, every year since then. And so, uh, that's why I own this company. I think 
you know, natural gas right now is about like as bad as it's ever been. And one of my thesis is, is that uh, as we've seen some of this energy stuff going on throughout the world, um, the United States is going to want to have uh, access to its own, its own energy. Right. And I think that's going to be good for natural gas uh, over the, you know, next 30 or 40 years. And we are making transitions to like EVs and stuff like that, but that's going to take a really long time. So that's my like main thesis there. Um, but they're actually being acquired by One Oak, which um, I think is like a very, is, is going to make both of these companies stronger. And so essentially uh, if somebody owns shares of One Oak, which the ticker is OKE, they're going to get um, like Magellan MMP is going to be wrapped in. If you own MMP, then the way they're doing this is it's 63% stock uh, that you're getting in um, uh, as an MMP shareholder, you're going to get OKE stock and then 37% cash. And essentially what this is doing is it's just making their assets um, more wider spread, more diversified. And then both of these companies are outperformers over the long term and have done a really good job. So the other thing you can do, we're back on stock unlock. This is MMP in the dividend screen, as you can see, total returns. And so this is compared to the S&P 500. So we're going back to 2001. This is one of my favorite graphs, by the way. Yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> the blue line right here is MMP total returns, which incorporates the dividend. And it's at 1,760% since 2001 versus the SPY total returns of 273%, right? And so um, without the dividend, just the price return has still beaten the market, 924%. And it's been a dividend pair the whole time. Uh, and that's MMP. And if you look at One Oak, um, it's, it, you're going to see a very similar thing over that, that time period. Um, again, so One Oak right here since 2001 or 2000, uh, total return of 1,700%, again, versus the S&P 500 of 250. So these two companies are combining. I think it makes their portfolio more diversified. It's going to give them the ability to keep paying a great dividend, keep growing, um, and then benefit some uh, like cost efficiencies from scale. Um, so that's why I own that. And it's my exposure to uh, kind of oil and, and natural gas. Nice. Yeah, I got two comments here. I see that the Insight score is very similar on those two stocks, which is just cool. Also, thank you for pronouncing that company's name, One Oak. I would have said Aniok or something like that if I tried to read that. <laughs> Daniel uh, knows that I, if there's anyone who's going to make a pr pronunciation or reading blunder here, it's me. But yeah, that's great. I may have pronounced it wrong. I don't know. I think it's One Oak. I don't know. Yeah, well, we'll figure it out. Someone will correct us in the chat. And j just a quick one for you, Austin. Do you drip your dividend investments? So if anyone's watching and doesn't know what that is, a lot of brokerages let you reinvest your dividends automatically when they get paid out. Just curious how you view that if you do it stock by stock. I think for Daniel and I, we tend not to and just allocate that money wherever it sees fit. But curious how you view dividend stocks like this. Since it's yeah, I just half your stock I just, dividends and half aren't. I just reinvest the dividends into the back into the stock. Nice. Um, and the thing is, so like my goal right now from a portfolio standpoint is like I'm not living off that income. So my my goal is not to maximize dividend yield and dividend income right now uh, because in someone at my stage in life, that's actually a negative, right? Because um, you've got to pay taxes. Every single dividend that comes in, if it's not in a retirement account, you're paying taxes on that, right? And so, uh, and then generally, if a company's dividend is very high, there's not a lot of um, share price return. And so what I'm opting for, you will see a couple in there, like 6% is pretty high, right? So there's a, couple, a little bit of that. But what I'm optimized, trying to optimize for is total return. Um, so I think the share price will go higher and they're going to continue to grow the dividend over time so that in 20 years, then I'm sitting on like a nice, you know, uh, cash like flow of, of dividend income, but I'm not looking to maximize dividend income right now. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so keep an eye on the time here. I think we got about 10 more minutes on this live show. You have been a great guest so far, Austin. Let us know what you guys are thinking in the chat. We are always trying to innovate on this show and bring you guys the best investing content. I'd say drop your questions for us. Daniel, I'm not sure if you want to sift here and pick one out. Uh, Austin, also, just for the end of the show, if you want to get some of your social links ready, we'll definitely give you a chance to plug those. 
And thank you everyone for hanging out. We're rocking at 82 live viewers. And we know a lot of you are listening to the show on Spotify after this and YouTube. So we really appreciate all your support. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we had a question from Ralph, one of our super users, number one fan. Uh, so I feel like I, I got to answer this question for him. He sent me an email about this. So all of the bank, Canadian, major Canadian banks reported their earnings over the past couple of weeks. And he saw that there's a lot of negative headlines going on right now about banks increasing their loan loss provisions, was, which is essentially like their emergency savings funds. That's how you could think about it. They set aside cash for future loans to potentially go bad. And when they do this, they have to report that that cash on the side as against net income. So it lowers net income. So I'm going to share my screen. And again, this is all over the headlines right now. Oh, you know, Canadian banks are increasing their loan loss provisions. This means everything's going to go to hell really quick. The dang but, media. Yeah. So <laughs> let's go and take a look here. And we actually have the loan loss provisions. And okay, so this is since 2021, right? First or sorry, second quarter right here. We can see that Royal Bank of Canada has put aside $600 million in loan loss provisions. Wait, is this correct? Let me just make sure. Loan loss provisions, Royal Bank of Canada, $600 million. Yes, this is correct. So you can see that year over year, it's, it's increased by quite a substantial amount. Right here, $67 million last year. So it's almost 10x year over year. Or sorry, right here, it's 4x year over year. So people are saying this means that Canada or these banks are, you know, setting aside a ton of cash for things to go bad. But if you zoom out, this is actually like kind of normal. This is more normal. I mean, right here in this set, or where was it? Sorry, my presentation today is not the best. And here in 2019, the value was 426 million. And if we take a look at the trailing 12 months, you can see that the loan loss provisions are really just getting back up to what they normally are. I mean, back here in 2009, when the banks were about to collapse, it got up to 3.4 billion. And you have to think too, these this bank's portfolio of loans now is significantly larger. So in a percent basis, this isn't really that bad. And again, it's just getting back to historical averages. What happened right here in 2020, 2021, and where the loan loss provisions were going down to essentially zero, this is when the economy was being pumped with cash, essentially. So when you take a look at a year over year, yeah, the numbers may look kind of scary. But when you zoom out to historical averages, it's really just getting back to average with interest rates rising and everything. So personally, I'm not too concerned about this. I think that the headlines are kind of blowing this out of proportion. And um, yeah, it's not really something I'm worrying about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to catch you in a, a friendly bind here, Daniel. So you are obviously a big bull on Canada. You live there. Yes, I remember you saying that Canadian banks never get stressed. They're so much better than U.S. banks. The regulations are great, but it does look that they, like they did have some stre uh, stress there in 2008 from the rise of loan loss revisions. I'm assuming I'm reading that wrong, but were Canadian banks also stressed back then? Or is it more of like a relative less stressed than like the U.S. banks were? Um, I think there was stress across the entire global financial markets, but uh, man, I wish I had that screenshot up or the information i'm just trying to set you up for a really good go canada <laughs> oh it's coming you just got to give me some time to think <laughs> no there's a there's a piece of data that basically says since i think it was 1871 or something crazy like that there's been two bank failures in canada and since 1930 there's been zero and during the financial crisis no canadian bank went under and then if you compare that to the u.s there's been like thousands of banks that have gone under and uh I mean, in the past year, you guys have had some major banks go under. And like in Canada, that just doesn't happen, man. Our financial system is much more regulated. It's much safer. And just, yeah, so I'm not to answer Ralph's question. I'm not worried about the Canadian banks. I think that their loan loss provisions are going back to normal. And I'm not really seeing any major red flags yet. The media just likes to make everyone scared. Yeah, we got some uh, more Canada fans here in the chat. Shout out uh, the Great White North. Austin, curious. Do you invest in banks? Because Daniel and I go back and forth on this on the channel sometimes. I'd be curious to hear, do you invest in banks at all? What do you think about them? Uh, usually not. Um, with the disclaimer that uh, I've sat here and talked about like long-term investing, right? And I, currently I own Sophie, S-O-F-I, Leaps, which is calls. 
uh, $5.50 strike price calls, which means um, if I own the calls, if the share price is below $5.50, when they expire, that those calls are worth nothing for me. If it's above $5.50, then, then they're worth something. Um, and I own January 2025 leaps on Sophie. So um, I generally don't own banks. The reason that I own this is it's like a very speculative position for me. I put an amount of money that I am 100% fine with going to zero completely in it. Um, and the thought there is just that like there's been a ton of negative sentiment around so Sophie, SoFi, whatever. Um, if they are truly this like disruptive, you know, bank that all the young cool kids are going to. Um, and with student loan repayments coming back on, you know, there could be some significant upside. And so I bought a very, 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 very small position uh, in these options. Um, I'm just going to sit on them until January of 2025. And however it works out, it works out. Um, all that That's to say, sounds a little ris risky. Yeah, I mean, it's less than 1% of what I have invested, right total. So it's like a point five percent position for me um so yeah my answer is no i don't invest in banks with the caveat the disclaimer that i have that very small basically speculative bet for 2025 on on sophie so that that's very um, funny because i also don't invest in banks but when spacs were a thing i really want to own a spac i bought ipoe I literally have a few shares of SoFi and I'm the definition of diamond hands. So I still have those. So technically I actually do own a few shares of SoFi. It is like not even a calculatable percentage of the portfolio, yeah. but yeah, it's a funny little thing we have in common. Yeah. Well, I anyways, saw a question. I hope those print for you, the calls. That would be great. Oh yeah. I mean, we'll see. Right. And I'm not, again, um, options can be very dangerous for people. So like, I'm not encouraging anybody to use them and, and you've got to know kind of what you're doing to, to get involved with options. So um, I only shared that because I said, no, I don't invest in banks, but I have that, that position. Uh, I did see somebody ask if I own Starbucks because I'm drinking Starbucks right <laughs> here. Um, I don't. And the company that I own instead or like a, a company, a dividend payer that I would rather own here than Starbucks that I do own is Lowe's, right? Um, and so, you know, a lot of people own Starbucks because it's a dividend paying stock and and they're uh, a dividend growth stock. Um, but if that's, when I look at companies, like I look at them all as like, okay, well, if I own that, then I can't own something else. And so comparing, this is kind of the, um, on Stock Unlock, it's the insights tab. I've got Lowe's on the left side and Starbucks on the right side. You can see here, it gets a better overall score. Um, and then the if you look at earnings per share growth over the next year, basically expected to grow about the same. Uh, the um, revenue is actually expected to go down a little bit. The Lowe's came off a very, very strong revenue coming out of COVID. So it's not like their business is falling apart. Uh, Starbucks is expected to have stronger revenue growth. Um, but for me, I'm trying to look at the uh, the uh, PE ratios here and I forget. Yeah, they're down here, right? The biggest thing for me is essentially they're to me, like the growth story is the same. The dividend, they pay about the same dividend. Lowe's has actually grown their dividend faster um, recently than Starbucks has. And they have a lower um, payout ratio. So I think there's more room for them to continue paying their dividend. And I just think Starbucks is like too overvalued for me right here compared to Lowe's. Lowe's is trading at a uh, PE of 19, whereas um, Starbucks is trading at a PE of 31. And then if you look at the forward price to earnings growth ratio, which is kind of compares the current PE with expected earnings growth, um, if it's uh, below one, which is stock and lock tells you, hey, is that a good score or average or what? If it's below one, that means earnings are expected to grow at a, a faster rate than the current PE ratio, basically. So that's where we're at with lows. Whereas Starbucks is at 1.27, which is just means a stock essentially isn't looking undervalued right here. Um, and then actually, again, I like to go back to like historical performance, right? Uh, this is over the last 10 years, total return for Lowe's has been 521% and it's trading at a low PE. 
Um, whereas five-year returns for Starbucks, total returns 310% and is trading at a higher PE. So better 10-year performance for Lowe's and it's trading at more of a discount for me. Um, and then I just like their business model, they're buying back shares and stuff like that. So no, I don't own Starbucks. It's probably supposed to be a shorter answer uh, than that, but um, I, I like Lowe's a lot. That's interesting. I never thought about comparing those two companies together. I see like the similar, the similarities in finances and then Obviously, they run like slightly different businesses, but yeah, I mean, like I think most people at this point don't own Starbucks because they're like, oh, they're disrupting the coffee industry. They own it for the dividend, you know, um, and, and for the the overall growth. And so when that's the case, you've got to look at it compared to like stocks you would own for the similar reason. In, in my opinion, it's not the sp pumpkin spice latte and chill. Come on. <laughs> I, I also think Starbucks is like one of the worst it's like a health crisis for, for the world. Cause it's like, the thing about it is like, if you go to McDonald's or Burger King, I'm again, I'm like, hopefully I don't want to offend anybody. If you go to like McDonald's or Burger King, you know, you're going to fast food and you know, if you eat too much of that, generally it's unhealthy. Starbucks, like the amount of sugar and calories in some of their large, super sugary drinks is like, I don't know if a lot of people realize just how full of sugar their drinks are. Anyways, that's my that's my spiel on Starbucks. As I sit here and drink Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say there's a there's a lot adding up now, but you know, with small quantities, if you are responsible, it doesn't mean you. Should yeah, of course. Like, but, I was just joking around about local, that, right? But consult yeah. your local dietitian for sure. Yeah, I'm not a doctor. I'm just wearing a pink shirt. Yeah. Anyways, uh, get get those social links ready, Austin. One very random comment from me on caffeine. You should look at the milligrams per ounce of caffeine in your coffee. So Starbucks, apparently, normally it's an eight or 12 ounce cup of coffee. You'll get around like 100, 120 milligrams of caffeine. Starbucks pumps up the caffeine in their coffee too. So it's more addictive. Also be very careful with concentrates. The reason why I know about this is a office building I used to work in had coffee on tap. And no one knew that I was actually concentrate coffee. So I ended up taking the top of the keg of coffee out, opening up the little kegerator fridge as a curious engineer would do, I guess. I went to Facebook, contacted this company, and I said, how strong is your coffee? And it was 40, milli 40 milligrams of caffeine per ounce. Now, if you do that math out, remember I said before, a normal cup of coffee is eight to 12 ounces for around 100, 120 milligrams, according to Google. So just know what you're consuming out there. Caffeine's a drug, it alters your mind. And yeah, if you are ready, Austin, I would love to send the chat over to learn where they can find out more about you. If you guys missed the beginning, there was a great intro for Austin. He has over 50,000 followers on Twitter, and he is obviously an investor like Daniel and I. So if you're enjoying what he's saying here, if you want to follow Austin more, he does have socials and things like that. And he is, of course, now officially a Stock Unlock affiliate. So part of the team. And we appreciate everyone giving uh, the warm welcome here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, this is fun. Thanks for having me. Um, and big fan of the Stock and Lock platform, the Daniel's YouTube channel, Stock and Lock channel. So yeah, super excited to partner and be here. Uh, Lieberman Austin. I'm at Lieberman Austin on Twitter. Uh, I have an email newsletter, austin.substack.com. And then I'm on the YouTube as well. Just search Austin Lieberman on YouTube and, and you'll find my channel and you watch a bunch of videos that are similar to the kind of videos Daniel does. So except his are, his are better. Uh, <laughs> so if you want more Daniel videos and you don't get enough, then you can come watch mine too. <laughs> uh, I'm dropping some of those links in the chat. Some of them look a little bit anonymized, but I dropped a Twitter one. The second one was supposed to be a Substack link. It looks like it is shortened, but you could also get that from Austin's Twitter. If you are on Twitter, throw him a follow, show some love. If you are not following or subscribed to us yet on YouTube, please do so. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, throw us a review, throw us a rating, share the show with your friends. We really appreciate doing this every week. And as we always say, thank you so much. There would be no show without the viewers. We're actually up to 93 live right now. Truly incredible. As we wrap up episode number 34 here, Daniel, any, any last words? You, you've been quiet here for the last part. Yeah, we've sorry. Been, we've been um, talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been listening and hanging out. No, um, just thanks everyone for tuning in as oh. always. Sorry, I'm reading a comment right now. Super glad to see Austin. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Austin. We really appreciate it. That was awesome. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again in the future.
Yeah, let's do it every Saturday. I'll be here. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I'd love to come back. Amazing. Awesome. Well, I, I guess that's it, right? It's always hard for us to end these because we just we'll start taking comments and the next thing we know, five minutes goes by, 10 minutes goes by. It's all fun. But yeah, Daniel, if you're not seeing any last comments here, I got my finger on the trigger on this end broadcast button, as we like to say. Yep, go for it. Uh, I, I got one thing. A lot of people are asking about like stocks in the comments, right? So um, if we didn't get up to them here, I, I know Daniel and I like to like review user requested stocks on our channels. So, you know, maybe we can do some review, like we'll, we'll try to get these into reviewing them on the channels. So just check the channels for stocks if you got them. We're not like ignoring those those comments, just so you know. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Perhaps Austin, no, no guarantees here because I'm asking him on the spot live, <laughs> not to put you under pressure, but stop. Yes, I'll do it. I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're asking, but yep. I'll Send do me a hundred thousand dollars. No. <laughs> uh, so stock unlock has a public watch list feature. So if there are some stocks that you are watching and you want to add some notes to them, we're very happy to help share that link throughout our networks. It could also help other people follow the stocks you're watching. You could update that live. And the cool thing is if you're listening and you still don't want to make a stock and lock account, I respect you, even though I don't agree with you, you can view these links without having an account. So we don't have that weird, you need to give us your email in order to view this. So we will share that in our discords. If you're not already hanging out there, we'll see you there. And yeah, thanks again. I think the viewers awesome. love that. Cool. Yep. But as we like to say, voluntold instead of volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Take it easy, everyone. I'm going to hit, hit, hit that in the broadcast. Bye. Bye. Bye.